You are listening to episode number 86, A Promise and a Problem. My name is Antracia Moorings, and welcome to my weekly podcast, where I share biblical truth to offer life for your walk and life for your soul. We are in chapter nine of Genesis, making our way through an 11 week study of chapters one through 11 of Genesis. If you're new here, you can join us by picking up the study on Amazon. It's called Dust and Divinity. And I also have another study, much shorter one on the book of Ruth called Harvest of Kindness, which is also available on Amazon. So this week we are going to look at the recreation of the world. Noah is a new Adam. And we see again that it doesn't take long for sin to rear its ugly head. So this recreation of the world is like a replenishment of the earth and continues with God commanding Noah, just like he did Adam, to be fruitful and multiply. In this chapter, we are going to see that there are some old commands that are reestablished along with new guidelines with regard to the freedom to eat meat. The words and subdue it, which were included in the blessing to Adam in Genesis 1 and 28, are left out here in chapter 9 with Noah because the world dominion that was originally given to man with Adam has been given up because of sin. And we're going to see that this dominion over the earth can only be restored through Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman, to whom it had been transferred at the fall. This is why Paul says what he does in Ephesians 1 and 22, verses 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So ultimately, Jesus Christ is the only one who can have dominion over all the earth since Adam forfeited his dominion in the garden. So we see that Noah surpasses Adam because he's given a kingly authority or the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. So if you remember, you've been following the study, we talked about the knowledge of good and evil, which is given to those who have authority, which Adam had not yet attained to. He reached for it prematurely when he ate of the fruit. So Noah's given judicial authority and he issues this decree from God that a new law is established and that's the law of capital punishment. Capital punishment is the consequence for a murder that is intentional, the murder of an innocent life because man is made in the image of God. And if human life is esteemed by God, then man had the responsibility to provide a kind and an ethical stewardship over all of creation. We see that God promised to never wipe the world out again by a flood, showing that there is a dignity that he puts on the human life. And God gives to man the right and the responsibility of capital punishment to protect human life, just like God promises that he will protect human life by not having another flood wipe every single thing, every living thing out. This command laid the foundation for all of civil government, which even exists today. So today, people who believe in capital punishment argue for it on the basis of 
passages or scriptures that commanded the Israelites to take a life for a life or an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But it was under the Mosaic law that these terms came into existence and Jesus entered the law when he died on the cross. So a better basis for capital punishment is these commands that are given to Noah with regard to how to deal with intentional murder. God's view of human life is that it's sacred. And so that should be our view as well. And the Bible is consistently teaching us that the punishment of the guilty is the role of human government. We see this in Romans chapter 13, verses one through four. So that when you meet out punishment for murder, it's to help to restrain the depravity of man. Because if there were no guidelines set in place and no consequences, then everyone would do whatever they wanted. But these laws and this capital punishment help to sort of curb man's desire for evil. Numbers 35 verses 31 and 34 say, From the hand of every beast I will require it to see the strength of God's command. He even requires a reckoning for the life of man from every beast. God does not condone unlawful killing of any kind. And then we see in this chapter that there is a distinct difference in what is allowed when it comes to man's diet. Meat is allowed, but blood is not. Deuteronomy chapter 12 outlines that blood symbolizes that life which God imparts to every living thing. And mankind is prohibited of partaking of blood when eating because of the significance of blood. The blood is an atoning factor, something that God places great value on. And the blood mirrors the preciousness of the blood of the lamb. And this is going to separate God's people from the pagan nations who drank blood to capture the living spirit of someone. So God did not want them to follow the ways of the people in the land. He wanted them to be distinct and separate. And meat is not offered just so that man can have a treat or something different to eat. It's to be used for covenant ceremonies, which we'll see in future chapters. And we'll see this with the Passover, which included the killing of a lamb to eat. So a whole significance for the ceremonial feast that will happen and be established for the children of God. And the peace offering is one of the five major sacrifices in the Levitical system that will be established. It was the one animal sacrifice where the regular everyday person could partake of it. They were allowed to eat the peace offering, whereas the burnt offering, the sin offering and the guilt offerings, it was the priest who made atonement. The blood of the peace offering allowed the worshiper to draw near, but the main focus was the meal this intimate fellowship that the everyday person could have with God by partaking in this sacrificed animal, which was part of the offering. As part of this sacrificial system, it pointed forward to the great sacrifice that was to come through Jesus Christ. But it was twofold. It wasn't just about Jesus's death on the cross. The sacrifice that the worshiper ate also pointed forward to the Lord's Supper. So a lot of significance with the eating of meat that was allowed. And the covenant that God made with Noah 
included never destroying the world again with water. And in verse number nine of chapter nine, the covenant includes a covenant promise, the covenant sacrifice of shedding of blood, the covenant meal. And we see those two in Genesis chapter eight. And then we see the final establishment of the covenant in nine and nine. And then the token of the covenant in verses in Genesis nine and 13. And in this case, that token is the rainbow. And this is an everlasting covenant that covers all of humanity and the token still exists today. So whenever you see a rainbow, we remember that that is the promise that God gave us that he would never flood the earth again. And this rainbow holds a lot of significance. The rainbow is shaped like an arc and it's the form of a battle bow, which is hung up in the clouds. And the Hebrew word for rainbow is keset. And it's also the word for a battle bow. And the bow is now put away by God and it's hung in place up in the clouds, which gives us a picture that the battle is over. The storm is over. And so the rainbow speaks of peace. This is the true meaning of the rainbow. Now we know that there are many other symbols that other communities or people are using for the rainbow, but the real origin and purpose and symbol of the rainbow is God's peace that he will no longer point the bow of judgment in the form of a flood towards the earth. And the rainbow usually comes after rain, reminding everyone of God's promise that the rainbow will never give way to a flood again. And this covenant remains for all successive generations. We see this in verse number 12. People don't have a responsibility to guarantee that this covenant continues. God will do all that he promised. Look at all of the all of the uses of the word of the pronoun I, myself, and my in these verses. So the covenant is unconditional, it's universal, and it's everlasting. So we see that Noah gets off the ark and he takes up a job that we've seen someone take up before. He is a man of the soil and he plants a vineyard. He was a gardener just like Adam. So we have a new earth with a slate wiped clean, followed by another incidence of sin. Like I told you, it didn't take long for sin to rear its ugly head. And notice the similarities between Noah and Adam. There's a new earth. There's a sin which happens by eating food or fruit. And there's a disregard for the father. So what happens is that Moses goes into the tent. He drinks wine and gets a little happy <laughs> with, with regards to the partaking of the wine. And... What happens in the tent stays in the tent, thanks to Moses's writing style. And a lot of people have speculated about what has happened in the tent. Moses doesn't say, so we cannot speculate about what exactly took place in that tent. But the issue isn't what happened to the tent, but the result of or the attitude towards what happened. It's a heart issue that's surrounding this whole incident in the tent. So it wasn't Noah's getting drunk that was the sin or the wrongdoing. It further, goes further than that. The sons of Noah are here, shown to belong to two groups of humankind. Number one, there are those who are like Adam and Eve and hide the shame of their nakedness. 
And then there are those who like Ham or rather the Canaanites who have no sense of their shame before God. The one group is the line of Shem who will be blessed. We see this in Genesis 9 and 26. But the other, the Canaanites, not the Hamites, can only be cursed, which we see happen in 9 and 25. And the Canaanites became known for their shameless depravity when it came to sexual matters. We'll see this time and time again in the Old Testament. And this is going to be important to know because the audience that Moses is writing to will soon enter the promised land, which is full of Canaanites. So Noah drank the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness and Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father And told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards, and they did not see their father's nakedness. And when Noah woke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to them, that's when he hands out the curses. So we see the distinct differences in how these brothers handled what happened in the tent. So... Noah says, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Noah's words did come to pass in the future because we read that many of Canaan's descendants were either killed or put under servanthood by Israel descendants of Shem, during the times of Joshua and the judges and later by King Solomon. So why did Noah pronounce a curse upon Canaan rather than Ham? Because it was Ham who actually was the one who saw what happened in the tent and went and told his brothers. Noah's words came to pass. So we believe he was inspired by God and what he said when he handed out these curses. But other than that, the Bible doesn't really share with us the real reason or the precise reason why Canaan was cursed instead of Ham. So we can only speculate. But here are some of the answers that I found from commentators. One is that Noah refused to curse his son since God had already blessed Ham in Genesis 9 and 1. And it says, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So since God had already blessed, it would be crazy for Noah to turn around and curse what God has blessed. So that's one reason given for why um, the grandson was cursed instead of the son. And Noah could see that Canaan could also possess that carnal nature of his father Ham, and he may have realized it would only get worse in generations to come. And maybe this is why the phrase Ham, the father of Canaan, was used in Genesis 9 and 22, since Canaan was very much his father's son. And Canaan was not only the father of the Canaanites, but also of the Amorites, the Jebusites, the Sidonians and the Phoenicians. All these people would at some point in the future start a war against the descendants of Shem and, though to a lesser extent, to Japheth and would also become very idolatrous and do some very heinous things. So Noah may have been prophetically denouncing their future departure from the faith in the true and living God. 
But the overall lesson of the passage is that God blesses those who act righteously, but he curses those who just give up all moral constraint and abandon the ways of God. So the root of the depravity of the Canaanite culture was that they looked at someone's nakedness or that their forefather looked at someone's nakedness. So that gives us some insight and some wisdom to let us know that we need to be careful about viewing nudity. It can lead to an addiction, which we see in our culture today. A very big pornography problem is happening. And so that results in a complete corruption and ends in divine judgment in the scriptures. So something that we need to be aware of as well as we are consuming TV shows and media, we have to be aware of what we're consuming and realize that in it lies an evil root that we should want to stay away from. And an interesting fact is that the first three heroes of the faith that are listed in the Hebrews Hall of Fame are from Genesis chapter four, Abel, Enoch and Noah, and they all believe God, even though how they ended up were different. Abel believed God, but he died. Enoch believed God, but he did not die. Noah believed God and everyone else died in the flood, although he did later die of natural death at the age of 950 years old. We cannot determine where our faith will lead us. Our job is simply to be faithful before God and he determines the course of our lives and what happens to us. So our tendency as humans is to only see Enoch as the example of faith because he walked with God and then he was not. We see that as sort of the gold standard of how we should live our lives. We want to be the Enochs of our generation. But Abel also provides a very great example for us. So what we have is three examples of men who all walked in faith before God, and they pleased him. And that faith should be an example for us today. So we should be continually walking in faith before God, but not looking for God to recreate the faith of someone else's life. So we shouldn't be looking to get Noah's life because we walked by faith, or maybe the life of a Christian popular person that you look to. We want their course of life because we've been faithful. No, God has already determined what our journey is going to look like. We simply have to walk it out by faith and in righteousness before him. So that's it for Genesis chapter nine. I pray that you've been blessed this far in the study. We only have two more weeks left of the studies. For those of you who have been sticking it out, thank you so much. I pray that it's been a blessing to you. And if you have any questions, please be sure to forward them to me and I'll answer them to the best of my ability. If you're listening new to the show and haven't subscribed yet, please subscribe and also share with a friend. Let them know that you're enjoying the podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to Unfolding Words this week. I'll see you back here next week. Until then, may God's word be a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. God bless you.